The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. This is not a buy, sell or hold recommendation for any particular security. With me is John Stopford, Head of Multi-Asset Income at 91 in London. And the topic concerned is actually quite complicated, but in a way quite simple as well. I'll give you the introduction to the piece that John kindly sent me. It says here, the recent write-down of Credit Suisse's AT1 bonds and the dreadful performance of government securities last year should reasonably lead investors to question the defensive qualities of their fixed income holdings. It goes on to say, traditionally bonds are seen as safe and equities as risky, but this is rather a simplistic view of the world and one which ignores the quality and breadth of securities which make up a company's capital structure. That's the intriguing intro. John, Please tell us about Credit Suisse, first of all, and what prompted you to write this piece? Well, really, it's about, you know, where can you find reliable income, essentially? And is that then a basis for, you know, building an income portfolio beyond just investing in bonds? And the sort of Credit Suisse example, so that um, a while ago, banks issued things called COCOs or began to issue things called COCOs, contingent capital bonds which on the face of it are a bond, but the way they behave is rather scary. And as was demonstrated recently by Credit Suisse. So essentially, they're a bond when everything is fine. And then when everything goes wrong, they become essentially worthless equity and can be written down to zero. So they provide a capital buffer for for financial institutions. And that's exactly what happened with Credit Suisse. So Credit Suisse was taken over by UBS recently because they'd been Credit Suisse had been in getting into trouble for a while and things had sort of deteriorated so to sort of save them they were essentially taken on by UBS and equity holders in Credit Suisse got a little bit of payment for their shares but anyone holding 81 bonds the the cocos essentially was written down to zero and that was a very unusual essentially unprecedented event because typically, if the bondholders get written down, so do the equity holders. And that's the normal ordering of the capital structure of a company, of a bank. So that was the first thing. So people thought they owned bonds and they ended up owning worthless equity. Equity holders actually got some cash. And so, yeah, it was seen as a, a sort of very, very unusual set of circumstances and sort of calls into question, I think, people's general assumption, as we said, that bonds are safe and equities are risky in this case. Actually, it turned out that what people thought were bonds were the riskiest part of the capital structure. It's very interesting you say this. And another sentence here that I'm going to read is uh, the following. Even the most secure bonds issued by highly rated governments such as the United States can lose significant value. And that's quite pertinent because at the moment, as we pre-record this podcast, there's a yet another potential US government debt default because of the debt ceiling and all that sort of thing. But the one thing I wanted to ask you, which you don't bring up in your piece, is that what has this done to other bonds? I mean, has it made them more attractive? Is other corporate issuance more attractive because of the demise of the Credit Suisse bonds that you've just spoken of? Or does it also taint them with the Credit Suisse uh, brush of nastiness, if that's the phrase? Well, I think it definitely has made people question the validity of owning so-called cocos that, you know, are they really a bond? I mean, the whole idea of, a you know, the whole name, my word is my bond. It's uh, meant to be a, you know, clear undertaking that you'll get repaid and you'll get your coupons, your interest payments on time and so on. But it's actually a piece of financial engineering. And so 
you know, arguably it gets caught under the bond heading, but it's a lot more toxic than that. So I think people have begun to question that. And clearly, you know, there are still banks that are under pressure at the moment. And so their ability to raise capital at reasonable levels is problematic. But the general, the sort of wider point we were trying to make was that actually you need to think about the nature of the bond you're buying. Is it really high up the pecking order? Are you going to get paid out before other claims? But also to think about the quality of the underlying balance sheet. So, you know, are you better off actually owning a high quality business with a strong competitive position, owning the equity if they're essentially committed to growing their dividends over time or keeping their dividend stable versus lending to a very risky company in, via the bond market. So we just think the whole idea of bonds equal safety, equities equal risk is just wrong. And actually, you're better off thinking about the quality of the cash flows, their reliability, how they're priced. And you can actually use some parts of the equity market potentially as a proxy or as a replacement for some parts of the fixed income market and potentially deliver a more stable outcome than you can just going out and buying something because it's called a bond, but may turn out to be a lot more uncertain or a lot more risky than the name suggests. What you're saying, essentially, I don't want to call you a disruptor. I don't want to call 91 in London a disruptive financial services company, but you're sort of turning traditional wisdom on its head and you say we believe investors should focus less on the generic names used to delineate asset classes such as bonds or equities but rather focus on the reliability and predictability of the income streams these securities produce which is exactly what you've said so reliability and corporates go hand in hand from what you're saying and whether it's a bond or whether it's an equity is not immaterial but certainly it's the reliability that's the key here. Yeah, I think that's right. So fundamentally, you know, any asset is basically a long run set of cash flows and then a discount rate applied to that. And the, the sort of variability of that is going to be primarily a function of well, the market movements, but broadly, you know, how much certainty there is in those cash flows. And we would argue you've probably got a greater degree of certainty, you know, buying the equity of somebody like Procter & Gamble who have raise their dividend every year for 66 years in a row versus going out and buying some uh, junky high yield bond that might default tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but people persist, I guess, in viewing equity as risky and bonds as safe, even though that is a sort of very black and white, very simplistic view of the world. And actually, we think you just need to dig a bit deeper, think a bit more deeply, think about why bonds are defensive normally on why equities are risky. It's about essentially the resilience and predictability of the cash flows rather than just the simplistic label. Very well described. You say finally, which you've already said, but I'll say it to, just so you can neatly wrap up what you've been saying. It says, we think it makes sense, therefore, for investors who are looking to achieve a defensive bond-like outcome to cast the net as wide as possible, to ignore simple labels and to focus instead on the quality and resilience of the cash flows offered. Very neatly summed up. John, thank you very much for your time. John Stopford is the head of multi-asset income at 91 in London. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. 
The views of this podcast are those of contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider.